became a Christian at the age of 19. Uh, and I remember feeling happy and cross, kind of incensed, all at the same time. Happy, uh, deliriously happy that God in Christ forgave me. I was now his, he was now mine. It was wonderful coming to find the truth about Jesus Christ. But I was also simultaneously cross. I was like, why? how can it possibly take 19 years of my life to hear this kind of news, news this important and this vital for everyone to hear? How did it take that long? I hadn't met a single Christian uh, before I got to university. And though growing up, once in a while, I heard some Bible stories or I would hear about Jesus, I can guarantee you not one person explained to me the gospel of Jesus coming, his living, his dying, his rising, and what it means for us, people in the earth, as response, in terms of a response. And I wonder what it would be for you. How long did it take before you heard the gospel of God? Now, some of you are sitting there thinking, well, actually, I can, I can never remember a time where I didn't know the gospel. Uh, it was in my household. It was, the Bible was open around our table, etc. I've been coming along to church with my parents for a long time. That is a glorious thing. You have no idea how blessed you are. But what about others? For me, 19 years. For you, how long would it be? I guess in a congregation like ours, we've got a mix of folks who maybe it was just, you know, maybe they came to faith at eight. Maybe some folks at 68. Well, it can take a long time. And here's why I think that is. Uh, three particular reasons for it. One, there just aren't enough Christians today doing what Jesus said to do. 2% uh, of people in Scotland would claim to be evangelical. Evangel is just that word uh, which means gospel, essentially. Evangelical, when it refers to a person, refers to someone who believes the gospel and proclaims it according to the word of God. A church that is evangelical is said to just do the same collectively. Hold to, proclaim the word of God. 2% would say today that they believe the gospel in that sense. That means you could fit every Bible-believing, Jesus-proclaiming Christian in Scotland into, say, a gig at Murrayfield. And I say gig because you'd fill up the stands, 72,000, and you'd have quite a tight squeeze of getting everybody onto the pitch. That's what it would be like. When you think about it, that is a tiny number of people. Uh, officially, I looked this up this week, there are more dogs in Edinburgh than there are Christians. I don't even like dogs. There's, that's a scary statistic, right? Second reason, there aren't enough churches do, doing what Jesus said to do. Uh, Andy Hunter, Scotland director of FIC, would say regularly, there are more betting shops in Scotland than there are uh, churches. I mean, if you're in one of the six main cities in Scotland, you should be okay. If you're sending your kids off to uni there, it should be okay. If you have to move for a job to one of those places, you should be okay. But in general, if you have to go to smaller towns and villages, you're either going to have to travel far or settle for less. There just aren't enough churches, bottom line. Third reason, there aren't enough pastors leading churches to do what Jesus said to do. There is a serious shortage of pastors in Scotland. We have churches contacting us regularly to say, have you got someone, have you got someone? And it's more than what we've got coming through the training program. 
In fact, it's going to get worse. According to the Barna study that was conducted in 2015, they looked at uh, pastors in Scotland as well as a number of things and realized that three out of four pastors in Scotland are 50 and over. Do you know what that means? Yes, it means that they're old, but alongside that, it actually means that in 15 to 20 years' time, the situation is going to be worse. And that means that people today are statistically less likely to hear the gospel than I was when I became a Christian. But in 19 years, less likely still. God doesn't want to sit us, us to sit in a panic about it, biting our nails, doesn't want us sitting in the dust, bemoaning the loss. He wants us to do something about it. And what is that? Well, let's look at Matthew 9 and find out. Matthew 9 is, uh, Matthew's gospel is written to tell us that Jesus is king, the long-awaited son of God and savior. And he's come to preach about a kingdom that people can join and be part of and come into. And uh, in this passage, I want us to see that leadership development is demonstrably key to the spread of the gospel, the planting of churches, the developing of leaders, okay? Let's read it together, Matthew 9, 35. Jesus went through all towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and illness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew. James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot who betrayed him. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, basically, I want to put everything under two main headings this morning. Number one, I think we're called here to see as Jesus sees, and two, do as Jesus did. Simples. First of all, see as Jesus sees. When you look at verses 35 to 38, what, what does Jesus see? He looks upon crowds, but what does he see lost people. Verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Now, sheep are needy little things. Basically, without a shepherd, sheep die. And that's really the point that Jesus is trying to make with this simple little illustration pointing out their plight. He sees needy people. And I wonder, just even pausing there, is that what we see when we look around us in Edinburgh, in Scotland, even in our own social networks, our own relational connections, the people that we had dinner in with on Friday night or whatever? Is this what we see? I, I have to say, I, I, I need regular reminders of this. 
Because I can walk around the places where I live and eat with the people I, I, I live beside often and I can see educated, healthy, peace-loving people who are actually quite nice people. You know, they give to charity, they give things away on Facebook Marketplace and so on, and they've given up using plastic bags in all sorts of ways. They are just nice people. But I need reminded regularly that according to God's perspective, they are lost. They are lost. Living without the knowledge of first themselves and the great danger that they're in, without Jesus, the only one in whom they have hope. So watch out for that. Let's not be lulled into the same blindness that causes in them their lostness. Let's, let's have that heavenly, God-given perspective on life in this world and be reminded of that regularly. Now, maybe you're here today and you're like, well, that would describe me because I don't believe in Jesus. I'm just here trying to figure this out. Somebody brought me to have a look at this. Uh, I want you to look into this a little bit more because the Bible is super honest about the read on humanity. It paints us in just the right picture, in the right ways, with the right criteria. I mean, God exists, but we deny him. We're therefore sinful and rightly judged by him. Sin unforgiven throughout life will mean condemnation when we die, which means hell after death. The good news is that Jesus hasn't left us without hope and without a solution for that situation. That's indeed why he came and lived and died on the cross, bearing our punishment for himself, that we might, who believe in him, be free from that punishment and that condemnation. And indeed, he rose from the dead three days later to, uh, to prove it, to rubber stamp it and say, if you believe it, it's true. You can trust me. And he calls us to live a life of faith in him. Uh, if you want to find out more about that, talk to the person that brought you. Go to the Connect Corner. Uh, chat to me at the door. Or there's a prayer team down the front afterwards. They'd love to serve you in thinking about this. This is too good to miss. Don't let it take a long time before you first hear it now and think about it again. The good news is that Jesus not only sees people and their need, he feels deeply for them in their need. Uh, verse 36 tells us that he had compassion on them. Now, given what I've just said about sin being what sin is, I find that astonishing. This is the Lord of heaven and earth who's standing looking out on these crowds. These are fundamentally uh, sinful people, sheep who've gone astray by their own volition and way. And Jesus looks on them with compassion. Even though sin is like an ammonia to his nostrils, you see his love. He looks on these harassed and helpless people and decides he's going to move towards them in compassion. What does he do? And what does he teach us to do? Well, to pray. To pray for lost people and pray for workers. We'll get to that. Ask God to bring them in that people would hear the gospel, believe it for themselves, and be saved. Pray, as verse 37 and 38 says, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Now, that's crucial, isn't it? Jesus' prayer reveals his plan. The problem is a ready harvest without workers. Okay? The solution is, in Jesus' eyes, workers. Feet on the ground, people hard at the harvest and work, and now is the time for people to be brought into his kingdom. This is the time. The time is, the harvest is right. 
Now, how often do we pray along those lines? When was the last time you prayed for God to send more workers into the harvest field? Let's make that our prayer this week and beyond. So we pray that God would not only help us see the need that Jesus sees, as point one is, but also point two, to follow his example and do as Jesus does. Jesus trains up and sends out workers. Now, this is where we're looking under the bonnet and we're having a little bit of a look at the means by which the strategy employed by Jesus in reaching the lost. What's he going to do in the face of this vast need? And I, there, there is a certain method that Christ employed that is undeniable. And it's both clever and a little bit surprising in terms of a methodology in his ministry. You see, we know that Jesus had three years of public ministry. He knew that would be all he had. From the moment of the, the beginning of that ministry, of his baptism by John the Baptist and his rejection of his preaching at Nazareth immediately after the testing in the wilderness, which we read about in Luke 4, the cross is on the horizon. He knew that was why he had come. He had come to die and the clock was ticking. Now, think about that. Let's imagine for a second that Jesus says, I want you to come up with a three-year plan that serves as a launch pad for taking the gospel from this tiny little embryo here and spreads out across the whole globe. Think about it. What would you do? Imagine you were turning around to the person next to you, little groups of three and four. Should we do it? No, of course we're not going to do that. But as you think about it, what would you do? What method would you employ? Well, in today's age, we might think, oh, I'd tweet it. Uh, I'd make a video about it and I'd, uh, I'd pay Facebook for some social media marketing and all that kind of stuff and just get out. But that's not what they had then. This is word of mouth. What is he going to do? For maximal coverage of a gospel so crucial? Well, if you take a closer look at the four gospels, you'll see. He doesn't spend all his time preaching to the lost. I find that fascinating. He doesn't spend lots of time preaching to the lost. He does, but there's more to be done. He spends lots of time training all his disciples, all who would call themselves Christ followers or Christ learners, and even more time with just a smaller group of disciples. So I don't know if you've noticed this before. I mean, the Bible, when you read the four gospel accounts, the word disciple can be used to describe a great big group or the smaller group of 70 or 12. And so you've got to try and read the context to figure out exactly who's been spoken of in there. There is, of course, if you think of kind of concentric, wide concentric circles, in the, in the great outer circle, if you like, Jesus, uh, Jesus preaches and proclaims the kingdom of God to the crowds who would gather. Now, they're interested, they're fascinated people, they may be, they're maybe hankering after the sensationalism of the miracles, they might be like the Pharisees who are there just to find a way to hang Jesus. You know, then there's the disciples, which as I've said, are this larger group of Christ followers. But then at times you read of the 70 or the 72 who are, if you like, they're trained in closer quarters than the larger group of disciples, but equipped for the same type of ministry that he himself has been doing. But then even within the 70 or the 72, there are the 12 whom he calls apostles. But even within the 12, he has the three 
the guys who, for example, would be his closest companions who would have the privilege of seeing the likes of the transfiguration on the mountain or being with him as he prays in anguish in Gethsemane. Okay? Now, take a closer look, and as you figure that out, Jesus spent more time with the 70, the 12, and the 3 than he did the rest. Uh, A.B. Bruce, in his classic book, The Training of the Twelve, notes that Jesus spent over 49% of his time talking with or being with the Twelve and even more time with them as he set his face toward Jerusalem. Now, that wasn't to the neglect of all who followed him. He was, of course, equipping, if you like, to use the terms of uh, Matthew 9, a wider workforce, uh, more generally, disciples who would still be workers going out into the harvest field. But uh, in Matthew, and in Matthew alone, I could take you to those times when he did that. Like the Sermon on the Mount is the most obvious example where he sits down with the wider group of disciples and teaches them, this is what the kingdom of heaven is like. This is what it looks like to live under Jesus' loving rule. Okay? So he does that. But it's undeniable that he focuses the large amount of time with a small group of people in order to train leaders. And the development of these leaders would be the crucial thing to the spread of the gospel when he left the earth. Three years, death, resurrection, ascension, uh, disciples commissioned. He had chosen to internalize everything about who he is in them in order that when he went up, there would not just be one of him here on earth, but 11, knowing that one would betray him. And then even as you read through the book of Acts, you see this, this methodology being employed again. Yes, there was training for all, preaching to wider groups. You know that instance in Acts where Paul's preaching to the church, can't remember exactly where it's uh, Derby or Lister or something like that, and then Eutychus falls out the window. Yeah, it's a danger of falling asleep during a sermon, by the way. Um, uh, and Paul restores him, gets straight back up and gets back on with the teaching. That's to a wider group of disciples. But then you can read about what happens with Paul, Silas, and with Paul, with uh, Silas and Timothy, for example, and how he took them on board and trained them alongside. They're picking up the disciple-making, leadership-developing methodology of Jesus Christ because it's a crucial strategy for multiplying leaders and reaching the lost. And how he did it, Christ, was crucial. And how he did it was replicated in Acts, in the New Testament letters as well. And I think Mark 3, 14 is one of the strongest pointers to what he does. So it says, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted. And they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach. So the methodology for Christ is develop leaders, train up, multiply myself in them and send them out to do the work. What in? Character and conviction and competence. That's why he wants them with him. He doesn't want them just to go through a program or a curriculum and then be sent out to do the work. He wants them to be with him all the time, to take on his holiness, his, learn from him about how he responds in certain situations. What does holiness look like in a, B, C, D, E, F, and G situation. He's trying to teach them these things. 
modeling it for them. And alongside that, he's teaching them a ton of things about who he is. He's correcting wrong doctrine. He's creating true doctrine. And he does it all along the way. So any time when you read about, on that time when you read about him saying, who do the crowd say I am? And they say, oh, some say Elijah, some say John the Baptist, blah, 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 blah. And he says, no, who do you say I am? And they say, you're, Peter says, you're the Christ of God. He's teaching them Christology. He's teaching them doctrines, simple doctrines that are given fancy words by intellectuals to make them sound really special. That's what he's doing. He's teaching them teachings, his teachings all the way through so that they might be with him, learn his character and his convictions, and then that he might send them out to preach. When you get to this point in Matthew chapter 10, having just prayed for more gospel workers, what does he do? He actually calls some to him from that wider group of disciples and sends them out. And if you read the rest of Matthew chapter 10, he gives them very specific instructions, which then, if you took that as a kind of, uh, these if you tagged these different things as responsibilities of gospel leadership, and then you went back to the start of Jesus' ministry, Let's say you went to Matthew 3 and took it all the way through up to Matthew 9. There would be plenty of times where you'd be tagging Jesus' ministry with the same things that you've just tagged the disciples' ministry. There's no doubt. He's got them going out to do the same kind of ministry that he himself has been doing. He is replicating himself, multiplying himself in them. The job description sounds exactly like his. So what does this show us in summary? Yes, training for all is absolutely vital, but training for some, I would say, is crucially vital for the spread of the gospel. Leadership development is demonstrably key to the spread of the gospel, this internalization and multiplication of Christ followers even among us today in gospel churches in Scotland today. It's still the same methodology. There's nothing new or fancy to do. This is what gospel ministry looks like. This is what needs to be replicated and multiplied in order for more of the people we know and love to hear the gospel as soon as possible. That's what should be our prayer but that's what should also shape our ministry. Ministry training is, uh, is crucial. Training leaders must be a priority. And even by that, initially, I mean we all must be better equipped to be the disciples, the followers of Christ that we ought to be. How many of you could put your hand up if I asked you? Put your hand up if you feel like you have grown in some way towards maturity in Christ in the last year or five years. You know, I would hope that many of you would do that. But I guess some of us can feel stuck. We don't feel like change is necessarily taking place in us. But in order to better be the Christ followers that he would have us be in terms of holiness in terms of love and devotion to the God who loves us, 
We've got to help one another do this better, and it's the responsibility of the elders to make sure that we're talking about these things with you and setting a good example and offering good leadership both at the relational level and the ministry level to help make that happen. It's something we're thinking about a lot just now, so would you pray for us in that? We're seeking to find ways to help one another know how we can engage those who don't know the gospel. Maybe that is the thing you need to do because you're not really in touch with folks who are not Christian. And then evangelize them. In other words, get to the point of talking about Jesus so that we can bring them one step closer to following him for themselves. Or even for, for those who are committed in our life together as members of Charlotte Chapel, how do we help establish one another more and more in our faith? To help care for one another deeply and speak into each other's lives in ways where we talk about suffering and its corresponding difficulties or sin and its corresponding problems and speak lovingly into one another's life in order to help us deal with these. That kind of change in growth and discipleship is a community work. You cannot do it on your own. And we want to help equip people with the tools that they need, whether it's in terms of sanctification and growth. So we do things like real change course, side-by-side -side course. We, we want people to know how to share the gospel, even if you've got a short period of time to do that. So we do things like two ways to live. We're thinking more and more about what are the things that we would want everybody to be able to do? What tools should everybody have in the toolkit for the future? You can help with that. You're the ones who can say, do you know, I actually struggle with this. I just don't know. No one has ever shown me how to read the Bible and do what, so what, now what. No one has shown me how to read the Bible on my own. So when I'm in my devotions, I'm open to all sorts of weird and wonderful thoughts. Because no one's taught me how to read the Bible. If that's you, tell us. We'd love to do that. We'd love to work through something that puts the tools in the toolkit for you. So I say all of this to say it's ministry shaping at the training for all level, for all of us as followers of Jesus. But it also necessitates focus for us. We should, the development of leaders for the future happens in the day-to-day -day stuff of local church life. So even for those of you who are maybe mature believers, discipling younger believers, has this crossed your mind that you might be being used by God to form a, a leader of the future? I'm not even just talking about pastoral ministry. Maybe men for local church leadership and eldership positions. Women for discipline relationships or leadership within women's ministry. There are all, all sorts of opportunities. Is this kind of thing in your mind? Those of you who are leaders of uh, growth groups or at YAC or Time Out, small group ministry. Are you thinking about the next leader coming through? praying for and looking for opportunities to bring people on, please do. And of course, as well as training for all, it necessitates a focus for us, doesn't it, on training gospel workers. How do we do that? Well, we've started doing it, but we're still trying to figure it all out. We're still trying to find ways to do it better. There are, in short, and I do mean in short, six things that you can do. <laughs> Number one, you can pray. Just as Jesus said in Matthew 9, pray for gospel workers. Pray that God would be at work in and amongst our local church family here 
to send out more gospel workers into the harvest fields for respective gospel ministries. Two, you can encourage, whether that's encouraging people to think about ministry or encouraging those trainees who are already serving, whether as apprentices, like James and Joel and Claire, or like our pastors in training, like Matt and Ashley and James. You can think about how you can encourage them on and never ever forget takes a church to train a gospel worker. It takes a church to train a pastor. I had lunch with, uh, brunch with Martin on, uh, on Thursday, Martin Smith, who's down in Hoyt, one of our trainees that we have had the privilege of sending out. And I was talking to him about this, and he could talk about everything from the welcome he received at Christianity Explored, to those who taught him in the room, to those who prayed in the room behind, to all the ways that folks encouraged him, had them round, he and Grace, round for dinner, but all the ways that folks uh, taught them stuff to do when it came to ministry, from staff team and so on, to just general connection with folks in the church family. It takes a church to train a pastor or a gospel worker. Third thing, maybe we need to reshape things. Maybe we need to think about internal ministry and external partnerships. Internal ministry meaning, what are we doing with all the resources that God has given us? How best would you want us as a church family to steward all that God has given us? With the time that we have, the money that we have, the staff team that we have, the elders that we have, the church family, workers that we have, all of these things. How best to deploy those resources, if you like. And external partnerships. This is why we're thinking about this partnership with Pillar. This is why at the church meeting later this month, the elders are, are recommending that we affiliate with the Pillar Network. Guys who know much more about this stuff than we do, who are desperate to help us so that we can double up and multiply the amount that we do. It's a crucial work. Fourthly, we can give. It's, it's obvious from the Barna Research study in 2015 that one of the key hindrances to training leaders is money. This church family has given very generously over thank offering days in order to fuel the kind of ministry training that we're involved in. And indeed, this church family and the elders have allowed me in particular to spend a section of my time discipling and encouraging and teaching some of our ministry trainees. Rachel does the same for Claire. But there is no doubt that if we had more money for this, we could do more. And the ability to do more, we can't help but realize would reach out and speed up our desire to be a witness in more places. We're trying to do this with Adam in Queens Ferry. We're trying to do it more and more in the days ahead. Pray for us. Um, the church has been very generous at making sure that through thank offerings we've been able to fuel ministry training. But the ministry apprenticeship fund is still not part. It's not a part, a budget line. It would be easier to plan if we could do things like that. Think about how we might give towards this that we might do more. Fifthly, we might send. It takes a church to identify and accredit a pastor. So the first question that I ask when someone comes and says, I feel called to ministry is, who says? <laughs> who says? And I'm looking for a local church eldership to say, 
this person should be thinking about ministry. We're looking for folks to say, my local church family has just sent me out. They want me to come and do this. They've encouraged me to talk to you about this. Might you consider this as a priority so that you think about those you're sitting beside or around or see in your growth groups and so on or see serving in ministry and encourage them. Make it happen for them. Let's send more people into gospel ministry. And lastly, sixthly, go. Maybe you want to go yourself to become a pastor, a women's worker, a youth worker, a missionary. God's goal in all of history is to gather around that throne at end of days people he has redeemed from darkness to light in the name of his son around that throne. There is no greater ambition or goal. Uh, we might be employed in all kinds of other work. That's still your goal, by the way. That's all our goal. But if God is encouraging you to set you apart for that kind of ministry full time, vocationally, in a paid sense, let's do it. There is a vast need out there. The prospects for the future are worse than they are now. I can give you statistic after statistic, but I'd rather you paused right now and thought of name after name, because let's face it, it's not just numbers of people we're talking about here. It's people we know and love. The harvest is plentiful. The workers are few. The need was, in fact, greater in Christ's own day. The need even worse than it was today. But with patience, with ambition, with clear focus, and with the help of God's Holy Spirit who indwells each and every one of us, we can see as Jesus sees. and do as Jesus did. Let's bow our heads together.